scripture reading this morning is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. That's on page 1028 in the Pew Bible, if you use the Pew Bible. And I'll give you a second or two to turn there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place until, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can be here this morning, that you set aside a day to be devoted to you, Lord. And we pray that you would keep our minds and hearts off of the things of this world, the demands of life, and fix them on you. We pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to speak from this passage that you would empower him to speak clearly and with power from you, Lord, into our hearts and that you would accomplish in our minds and hearts and lives what you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. One brief announcement before we launch in. I do want to remind you that next Sunday we will have a special guest with us. Dr. Stephen Wellam from Southern Seminary will be here. He will be teaching. Uh, we are going to have a combined Sunday school class in here, and Dr. Wellam will be teaching on the person of Christ. Um, he wrote uh, a book called God the Incarnate Son, came out a few years ago. He's going to be teaching on that. And then he will be preaching for us uh, next Sunday morning. Now, I realize that, I, I'm, well, I think I realize that it's time change Sunday next week. So start training yourselves now so that you get up. Or write the governor this week and see if he'll just turn this whole thing around and we'll just get rid of this whole daylight savings time business. I think I might get more amens on that than just about anything else we talk about this morning. Not, not really. But, uh, <laughs> but I would get an amen, right? All right, there you go. That's good. I wonder if you went into work tomorrow and uh, your boss said that you've been transferred to another city. And so in all the getting ready to, to go to that city and to look for a place to live, certainly for us as Christians, one of the things that will be high up on our 
priority list is to find a place where we can belong at a church, a church that we can join. It was with uh, great uh, joy that a couple of weeks ago, uh, Charity and Stephen Ledford uh, visited back. They moved to West Virginia last year, and, um, and they came back, and, just, and they were so pleased with how, um, how the Lord had provided a church for them to go to. One, not just one that quite frankly reminds them of uh, what they call their home away from home, and that's Gray Road. And that's a kindness of the Lord to give us those kinds of things. Um, but I wonder what you'd be looking for if you went. All kinds of things uh, make people's lists when they're looking for a particular church. Um, if I had my guess, many of you would say, well, I want to know that they preach the Bible. I want to know that they preach the truth. I want to know that they preach the gospel. I want to know that they hold to sound doctrine. Would you find that to be the case for you? Would that make the list for you? Now, some would go so far as to say, whatever else happens, so long as they preach the truth, I'm good. I just need a church where I just show up and I get fed the, fed the truth and I leave. I wonder if that's the kind of church that you would look for, one where the only thing on your list is sound doctrine. Now, if sound doctrine does not make your list, please see me afterward, and we can have a chat about why that would be so important. But even after sound doctrine, many things might make people's lists. But I wonder... If Jesus walks among the lampstands, what he's looking for in a church. That's part of what we get to see in these seven letters, working our way from. We, last week we saw a glorious vision of Jesus, the risen Christ, the God man, the mediator, the one who is among us to speak and to judge and to rule. And now the risen Christ will speak in these seven letters to seven churches. And is Jesus concerned for sound doctrine? Please don't hesitate in answering that, at least in your mind. He cares very much. It matters what you think of Him. This is part of what He is correcting in His own ministry. He keeps telling the Pharisees, if you knew the Scriptures, you'd know who I am. And as the apostles come after him and are charged with making disciples, what is the one thing that keeps coming back over and over and over and over again in the letters of the New Testament? It's sound doctrine. But is that the only thing on Jesus' list? Well, not according to the letter we just read. These letters all look pretty similar in the sense that Jesus introduces Himself and then speaks some, some kind of affirmation typically, and then typically there's some kind of correction, and then there's some kind of promise and charge that's given. We'll see little exceptions along the way, but that's typically how these letters read. And while they are written to real historical churches, these are not made-up churches. 
These are written to real historical churches. And Jesus addresses their particular situation, and yet I would argue that every church needs to hear these words. There is no expiration date on the letter to the church at Ephesus. That it's only up until a certain point that it's good. It's good today. It's good for us. It's good for me. And it's good for you to hear what Jesus has to say here. This first letter is written to Ephesus. It's an important city in the region, and it's really important. I mean, just think about how much Ephesus comes up through the New Testament. Paul travels there. He travels with Aquila and Priscilla, who some say probably founded the church in Acts 18. They stayed behind while Paul moved on. And then he came back. He stayed a couple of years preaching and teaching. He obviously has a significant connection with them. In Acts chapter 20, we see him gathering with the elders of the church to charge them to faithfulness, to watch out for wolves sneaking in to draw away disciples. He writes what is likely a circular letter, but that goes to Ephesus, the Ephesians. We looked at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 just not too long ago. I can't remember when, but my memory is not so good, but I do remember we've done it. He writes because he's concerned for them. He leaves Timothy behind to make sure that the place operates as it should, to make sure that sound doctrine in particular is upheld, that he warns those who are teaching another doctrine, that if anybody does teach a different doctrine that's not in accord with sound words, that they're just puffed up and they're interested in controversies and they just like to stir the pot, Paul says. And then we have this letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Ephesus. And what Jesus says to this church, and what our ears must be open to hear is this, that every church must be characterized by both truth and love. Every church must be characterized by both truth and love. Now, it's clear when we launch in, first of all, that Jesus sees a zeal for truth. He sees it. Verse 1 calls back to what we saw and looked at last week, um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, to him to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus walks among the lampstands that are his churches. And he holds the seven stars in his hand. And remember in chapter 1, we're told that these stars represent the angels of the churches. But who are these angels? I promised we would get to that last week, and so we're getting to that this week. Now, they could be supernatural beings. There are plenty of those kinds of angels in the Bible, aren't there? All over the place. And there are particularly all kinds of those kinds in the book of Revelation itself. We're constantly bumping into angels who's escorting uh, and blowing trumpets and these kinds of things. But I'm actually not convinced that that's what we have here. You see, holy angels are sinless. But these angels, along with the congregations they represent, are called to repent in five of these letters directly. The word repent is used. And that's why I, and plus, when you look at the New Testament, there's no particular special role given to angels among local churches. So if it's not a supernatural being, then what are we talking about here? Well, the word angelos in the Greek language is not just used of a supernatural being, it's also used of just messengers. Jesus sends messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. 
Uh, Rahab is said to receive the messengers that came to Jericho in James chapter 2, verse 25. And most specifically, and more than any other, the word messenger refers to John the Baptist. When it's quoting the Old Testament, Behold, I will send my messenger before you, and he will prepare the way, referring to John the Baptist as a particular kind of messenger. And I think that that's actually the best way to understand angel in Revelation 2 and 3 in these letters is a messenger to each church carrying the message of Jesus to the congregation, most likely a pastor or an elder in that congregation because he belongs to this congregation. He's not just an angel going from one place to another. He's a messenger of this particular church. And this is actually what preaching is meant to be, is that the preacher receives the message from the Scriptures and preaches the message to the people so that together we hear the message. Um, so tomorrow morning you can just tell your coworkers you have an angel for a pastor. Uh, don't do that. They they will misunderstand terribly. But we go on, and in verse 2, uh, we begin to hear Jesus' message for the church. It starts with these two words, I know. Indeed, every letter begins with those words, I know. Dear friends, Jesus knows His church. Nothing escapes His attention. He sees it. And he knows it. The, the word know here is, uh, is a Greek word that means complete or full knowledge. It's not a growing experiential knowledge. It's a complete knowledge. In other words, friends, we can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. You know, there are lots of websites and church consultants who will come in and teach us what it means to make a good first impression on a visitor. And, well, I mean, there's something to that, isn't there? I mean, because of what God's done in our lives, we need to be hospitable. We should be kind to those who come in. We should be loving, all of these things. Uh, but it almost seems like we have to put on a show so that people know uh, just how we're going to go out of our way, extra special, just to, to let you know that we're going to make a, first go a good first impression on you. But did you know that in the end, you know the impression that matters most? is the impression that Jesus has of this congregation. And I will guarantee you this, that if Jesus is pleased with the impression of this congregation, then we're not doing something wrong with the people who come in. You can't please Jesus and be unkind to people at the same time. You can't please Jesus and be unloving to people at the same time. He sees all the activity... He sees the heart. He sees the external. He sees the internal. He's ignorant of nothing. Nothing is missed. So what is it that Jesus knows about this church in Ephesus? Well, He knows their works. This is just a general word. It's kind of a catch-all. It sums up everything that comes after. So what is Jesus talking about their works? Well, He's talking about their toil. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil. It's a word that speaks to the intense labor that leads to exhaustion. Something that demands an all-out effort. Uh, uh, I can't remember if it's two or three years ago, uh, Susan and I decided 
That would be untrue. Susan decided that I should put in a paver patio in the, no, we really did decide together. That I should put in a, that we should put in a paver patio out back because the one that had been there was all wonky and hadn't been done right. So I go out, I took the whole week uh, uh, off in order to do this because I knew that no matter how long I thought it was going to take, it would take at least two days longer. So I go out with a shovel on the first day and I go to dig down, you know, six inches so that we can build up from the bottom. And I start at like eight o'clock in the morning and by 9.30 I've gone about three feet on my own with a shovel, you know, this whole thing that I'm moving across. And Susan comes out and wants to help. And I'm thankful for that. She doesn't have the best back, so I don't want her doing much. But she comes out and she takes a, she puts the shovel down in and she pushes it down and she lifts it up and she does it again. And she looks at me and she says, if I had known this was going to be such hard work, I wouldn't have suggested it. (laughs) And I want you to know that by the end of that day and the end of that week, there aren't many things that I've done where I was more tired than I was that week physically. That's what toil is. The work of the ministry is toil. It's exhausting when you actually give yourself fully to other people. When you pour yourself out for other people in teaching and in discipling and in counseling. Many of you know that. And you fall on your bed not because you've been digging up dirt, but because you've been pouring yourself out into someone else. Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering. And Jesus looks at the church of Ephesus and he sees it. He sees their toil. He sees how they're fighting the good fight. He sees their struggle to stay faithful. He sees the blood, the sweat, and the tears that they are shedding doing his work. And he repeats it, actually. Uh, He says, I know your toil. And then look at the end of verse 3. It says, you have not grown weary. Well, you have not grown weary there is just actually the verb form of toil. So he says, I know your toil. And at the end of his commendation, he says, and you are toiling. Not only does he know their toil, he knows their patient endurance. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. We talked about this last week, this internal strength to endure. It's a courageous acceptance of hardship and of suffering and and, and and of loss for the sake of Jesus. And he actually repeats that as well. We have the verb form in verse 3. You are, now I know is not actually there in the Greek language. So he just says, you are patiently enduring. So he starts out by saying, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. And he finishes by saying, you are patiently enduring and you are toiling. He wants them to know that he knows. He wants them to know that he hasn't missed anything. He hasn't missed one sleepless night that they've spent praying over the souls of others. He hasn't missed one time that they've been studying their hearts out, that they were defending the truth of the gospel to the outside world. They haven't haven't missed one moment of them investing their lives into the lives of other people. He hasn't missed it. And friend, I think Jesus would tell you the same. Most of the ministry that happens in this church will not happen from a platform. It may launch out from and be energized by and start with the pulpit. 
But when it comes to quantity, most of the ministry that is done is done in ways that nobody will ever see, nobody will ever know. They will never run a highlight reel of your ministry on the screen. There won't be some kind of public plaque that you're given at the end of your days. But can I tell you the good news? It doesn't matter if anybody sees it. The God who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus knows. Jesus knows how you pled with that other person to turn from their sin. Jesus knows how you've invested hours preparing to teach a 30-minute lesson. Jesus knows the nights that you sacrificed to be by someone else's side. Jesus knows the investment where you have seen no return, humanly speaking. But there is a return from the Lord Jesus. And if all the people in the world applauded our ministry efforts, Jesus would say, as He does in Matthew 6, well, there's your reward. But Jesus sees and He rewards, and that's enough. But He sees more that He commends. This zeal for truth, not only are they toiling, not only are they patiently enduring, They have an intolerance for evil, verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil. They won't allow evil simply to go on in the congregation. They hold one another accountable. They rebuke one another. They practice church discipline. They believe what Paul said about sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really, you really are unleavened. You see, sin is like yeast in the dough, and it gets everywhere. And when a church thinks that it's being kind to look the other way, it's like feeding sugar to yeast. And it's just going to blow up. But the Ephesians won't tolerate it. The glory of Jesus is at stake when it comes to sin and holiness. And they want Jesus glorified in holy living. I wonder, if you're, I wonder if you're wanting to transfer to the church at Ephesus just yet. One more thing. They have an intolerance for false teaching. Second half of verse 2, But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The word but there, I'm not sure. I wasn't in the room when the ESV was being translated, but the word there is the Greek word chi, which almost exclusively in the New Testament is translated and, not but. So he's not, con- he's not saying you don't put up with people that are evil, but you've tested them. He's talking about moral evil in the one. He says, and you will not tolerate those who call themselves apostle, who claim authority that they don't actually have. And Jesus comes back to this about the Nicolaitans in verse 6 that we know very, very little about. But from the letter to Pergamum, it seems that they were teaching a way of Christian living that emphasized that you can do anything you want. Immorality, sure. Idolatry, sure. We are free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't feel like you need to be bound. Obedience, those are are chains. You've been set free. They're false teachers. 
If your memory is with you, it sounds a whole lot like the false teachers that Jude is encountering, doesn't it? When he says they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now just think about those four things. They toil. They are pouring themselves in. They will not give up. They are fighting the good fight. They are patiently enduring, which means they are being opposed in their stance for Christ. They won't tolerate evil in the terms of sin, and they won't tolerate evil men in terms of false teachers. They have a zeal for the truth, a truth from the pulpit, a truth in the Sunday school class, truth in your private quiet times, truth in your conversations, truth in your living, truth, 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 truth. And all God's people said, Amen. Isn't that enough, Jesus? We've got the truth. We love the truth. Well, we'll get to that. But I would be remiss if I didn't just say how thankful I am to be part of a congregation that is this kind of devoted to truth. It's not because this congregation is better than any other congregation. For any congregation to be this devoted to truth takes an act of the grace of God. And I am thankful for that. I see some giving great effort to serve others, sacrificing time and energy and money for the sake of others. My family has been on the receiving end of such sacrifices, and many of your families have as well. I see a people who hate sin, who with tears running down their face, do what God tells us to do when it comes to things like church discipline. A people who hate false teaching won't put up with it, and I thank God for it, for His grace toward us in this. And even though we could say this generally, it really does do us well to ask personally, does a zeal for truth mark your life? Do you pour yourself out for the sake of others? Are you patiently enduring the hostility and opposition of others without budging? Are you concerned for the holiness of this church? Are you careful to weed out false teachers, whether they be writers of books or preachers on television or preachers on the radio or makers of podcasts? Now, if we answer all those questions well, it seems like that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, we just all go, we'll be part of the church at Ephesus and we'll sit under Timothy's teaching and it'll just be wonderful, won't it? It's wonderful. You go in, you hear the truth all the time. Truth, 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 truth. It's everywhere. It's painted on the walls. It's all over every publication. We've got the truth. We're a people of the truth. Isn't that enough, Jesus? No. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love 
you had at first. Jesus doesn't just see a zeal for truth. He sees an absence of love. Jesus sees an absence of love. For all that is right in Ephesus, this has gone terribly wrong. Love is conspicuously absent. It had been there. He says it's the love you had at first, but now it's been abandoned. I mean, imagine driving in some of the older sections of our city where homes that were once pristine and new and well-kept, you drive by them now and they are literally falling apart, not because someone went in with a sledgehammer, but because nobody's been caring for it for decades. And that's what's happened in Ephesus. They're faithful in the truth, but they're not in love. And the ways that the New Testament teaches us of love are the two ways that Jesus spoke of love, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So when we speak of love in this church, we should think primarily in these ways. They've lost the love for God they had at first. You say, lost their love for God? How can that be? Didn't you hear Jesus' commendation? They love the truth. They love theology. They love it in the classroom. They love it in life. They discuss doctrine over dinner. They scoff at such and such church that teaches such lies. They're always up on the latest theological controversy. They're always fighting to be on the right side of those. I mean, these people love knowing about God, and they love being right about what they know about God. And it is critical that we are right about God. You hear me on that? But there's a disconnect here. The disconnect is when one gains knowledge about God that doesn't foster love for God. It is, if you were, to be a tadpole Christian with very swollen heads and very anemic bodies. It is to have notebooks full of the sermon notes that you've, all, that, you've, that you've taken and the class notes that you've taken, but to have prayer journals that are empty, and maybe I'll get to those one day. So that one can study sin, but their heart remains unmoved. That one can read about the cross and find more joy in arguing for penal substitutionary atonement than in the fact that Jesus bore our sin and took our punishment. That one can read of the love of God and define it and defend it without relishing in it and without rejoicing in it. That disconnect is not uncommon. And that disconnect tends to be more present in places that are truth, 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 truth. When we are more pleased to argue for a right position on the atonement, than we are to remember what it accomplished for us. Things have gone terribly wrong. We must be right on the atonement, but we must be right so that we rejoice in the right things about the atonement. 
The love of God should stir love for, for us, should stir love of God in us for Him. How can you not love a God who has lavished His love on us like this? You tell me, wives, when your husband is just lavishing love and affection and service and deeds and all those things on you, just, just, just think, don't you just find it a little easier just to, yes, your heart is just drawn to that, isn't it? That doesn't mean, you do, I'm not going to love you until you love me back. I just mean, your heart is drawn to that. And what greater love is there than the love of God in Christ for us? There is no greater love. And for the Christian, it should draw our hearts to Him and stir our hearts in love for Him. Not only that, they had abandoned the love they had for one another at first. You see, God's love doesn't just stir love for God. It actually stirs love for other people. This is why in 1 John chapter 4, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's a natural outflow of the fact that God has loved us, that we will love others. In fact, love for one another is the primary mark that Jesus gives for the world to know that we are His disciples. It's interesting, He never makes such a succinct statement about knowing the truth. Of course, we need to know the truth. We need to be sanctified by the truth. His Word is truth. But here He says, you, people are going to know you by this. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's interesting when Paul wrote to Ephesus, he told them that they shouldn't just speak truth to one another. Just be truthy in your conversation. He says we're to speak it in love so that the church is built up in love. Listen to Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, meaning speaking the truth in love, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you want a church that is growing? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you want a church that's growing? Speak the truth in love. That's what he says. The church grows and builds itself up in love. It's interesting that when a historian in the, I can't remember who it was, so this is your homework assignment. Find out who it was. In the early second century, he's writing about what pagans are saying about the church. And he says, you know what they're saying they just keep saying, look at how they love one another. Dear friends, we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that the church is merely a classroom. Or that the church is merely a preaching point. Or an evangelistic rally. Though teaching and learning and evangelism all have their place in the life of the church. 
We can't begin to think that all these folks came into this room this morning because, hey, we share the same view of God and of His Word and of sin and of salvation and more, and we're going to sing about it, we're going to learn about it, but there's no love, there's no sense of family. It's at the end of the day, it's like when you took, you know, those huge... Uh, seminar courses in, in college, you know, like Biology 101. There's like 150 people in the room. And when the professor says it's over, it's not like you're, inter- you know, you're just interacting with everybody who's around you. So how are you today? How are you today? You're like, I got to get to my next class. Shut my notebook and go. That is not what the church is. The church is a family. If we lose sight of this, there will be no rejoicing with those who rejoice. There will be no weeping with those who weep. When Paul says, if one member suffers, everyone suffers together, we will be trapped into thinking, well, that sounds like a nice idea, but I've never suffered like that because somebody else was suffering. Are you pained by Carolyn Smith's dilemma? Are you hurting for the men in our congregation who are walking through chemo right now? Did it move you when baby Dalton died more than because a baby died? Because sadly, babies die a lot. Did you suffer with Misty in that? Did you suffer with Bill in that? Or is it just an item on a prayer list that you'll try to mention the next time you pray? You see, dear friends, the loss of love in a, of, for God, the loss of love for one another in a church is not just a little small misstep. It's not just icing on the cake. It's not... It's not just trivial. It's not a minor offense. Jesus says, Jesus refers to it as a kind of fall. Listen to what he says, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. In other words, when you loved properly, you were upright, but now you don't, and you have fallen. Repent. Apparently, loveless Christianity is is not simply incomplete Christianity. Loveless Christianity is a Christianity that's okay with the sin of lovelessness. How cold must our hearts be to get there? It's no Christianity at all. And the so-called church characterized by truth, 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 and love is somewhere else. I mean, it's in the truth that we preach. But it's not actually in the lives that we live. That church, in Jesus' mind, is no church at all. And he basically says, if you continue on with this, I'm going to remove the lampstand. Oh, you may have 10,000 people gathering there. That's all fine and good. You may continue along with your 300, 400, 500 people. You may continue with the 20 people in your living room. But it's no light of mine. It's not a church as I define it. It's not a church as I see it. The fact that people to get together and call it a church doesn't mean it's a church. Jesus defines what a church is. He gave His blood for her. 
This is the thing. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are big on the church here, but not because we just think you need to be at church or doing church or, or that you need to be a member of the church. But if you are a Christian, the Bible says you're not only reconciled to God, you're reconciled into a family. Jesus shed his blood to reconcile us to God, and the cross actually breaks down the barriers between as far as you can get apart, Jew and Gentile. But it begins, you don't need to just go around saying, I just need to be in a church. I just need to be in a church. Here's what you need, dear friend. You need to be reconciled to the God who created you, who made you in His image. Jesus Christ shed His blood for the forgiveness of sin. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Him, you will be reconciled to Him. And you will know what John means when he says, What great love is this, that, la- that God has lavished upon us, that, he, that we might be called the children of God. And if we're children, you know what that means? We're brothers and sisters. We're not individually children. By God's adoption, we're brought into one family. None of my six children, some of whom came through biology into our home and some of whom came through adoption into our home, but none of them can look at their brothers and sisters and say, yeah, I'm not really your brother. And none of them are permitted to act like they're not their brother either. They must torture them like any other brother that they would have. Gray Road, I wonder how we're doing here. As a congregation, I wonder how you're doing. I wonder if your love has grown cold. I wonder if your love for God has grown cold. I wonder if your love for others has grown cold. I wonder if you've bought into the lie that just being doctrinally right is all that matters. Now look, Jesus isn't asking us to exchange doctrinal purity for loving family. This is not an either-or type choice. It is both-and. Both-and. This is common today that people stand up and say, well, they, doctrine divides, but love unites. This is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus calls us both to doctrinal fidelity and to loving family. Every church must be characterized by both truth and love. Ephesus, they had a grip on the truth. They lost their grip on love. And if love for God is lacking, if love for one another is lacking, then Jesus says, He says, repent. He says, remember, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And then verse 7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the last thing to see is that Jesus calls for remembrance and repentance. He says remember. Literally, uh, it's a present tense imperative, which means keep on remembering. Not just take a moment and remember, but don't stop remembering. Don't 
stop remembering the love of God in Christ. Don't stop remembering the love. Do you remember the love of God you had when you were first converted? Don't stop remembering. Do you remember the love you had? I mean, when I, when I, I was converted when I was 15 years old, and I went from a kid who uh, uh, went along with my, my mom to church uh, uh, to one who basically... Uh, as much as a 15-year-old can, demanded to be at the church every time the doors are open because I could not get enough of the teaching of the Bible. I could not get enough of being with the church. I wanted to always be at the church, at the church, at the church, at the church. And six months after I was converted, my parents probably breathed a huge sigh of relief when I got my driver's license and I could just take myself to church and no longer are they shuttling me there. But do you remember... Do you remember that love for God? Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Do you remember? Jesus calls us, in essence, to be like the prodigal son. You remember what happened with the prodigal son? He's laying in the mud, and what does he say to himself? If I were back home, I wouldn't be begging for food. I would be fed. I'd be clothed, I'd have a roof over my head, I'd be loved. And he came to his senses and he got up and he went back. And Jesus is saying, remember, in, in, in the disgusting mud of cold, dead orthodoxy, remember love. Then he says, repent. Don't just think about it. Change how you're thinking. Change your way of thinking. Stop thinking that lovelessness is acceptable. That so long as I speak the truth, it doesn't matter if I love. Stop it. Turn away from that. Make a clean break with heartless doctrinal fidelity. And instead, do. Do the works you did at first. This is the logical outworking of repentance, isn't it? When your mind changes, your life changes. He doesn't just say start thinking a different way. He says start doing a different way. Plead with God to move your cold, dead heart once again for Him. Plead with Him to make your heart stir in affection for Him. Plead with Him to make your heart stir in affection for others. And actually, do the deeds of love and ask God to bring along the affection as you do. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis said, don't bother whether you love your neighbor or not. Just act as if you did, and you will come presently to find out that you actually do. Very practically, keep praying through the membership role. Do you know it's very, very hard to stay disconnected from people that you pray for? Loving others is actually aided by praying for others. You want another one? I know next week is Time Change Sunday. Come early. It's just very practical, isn't it? Come early. Stay later. Linger in conversation with one another. Relationships marked by love aren't built in these huge, sweeping, one-time actions. It's not like we went away on a retreat and we came back and everything's different. No, no, no. The relationships that are marked by consistent love, do you know how they're built? 
one conversation at a time, one interaction at a time, one moment at a time. Don't be freaked out or overwhelmed that you just you, you, you feel yourself disconnected and you don't know where to start. Start with one person. Have one conversation. Choose to speak to someone different next week than you do this week. Choose to follow up on those people that are on that prayer list. Send a card. Make a phone call. Find out how things are going. Do the things that are loving. God will bless your obedience. He will. And why? Because he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The one who conquers is the one who endures to the end. It's a military term, refusing to be overcome by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you know what the world, the flesh, and the devil would have us do? Only be involved in our truthiness and never so much in our loveliness. The devil loves it because it hollows out anything that we would say is true. Isn't truth without love part of what the, the world actually finds disgusting about Christians? We are ready to go toe-to-toe for 15 rounds over this truth, but I will not stand next to you in your pain and walk with you and pray for you and be loving toward you and speak the truth in love to you. You're either a convert or I want nothing to do with you. This is not love. The good news is that the Bible teaches that every true Christian actually will endure to the end. The one who conquers, quite frankly, is the true Christian. He who has an ear to hear is the one whose ears have been opened by the Spirit, so he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. He's essentially saying, if you're mine, do what I've said, and you'll get exactly what I've promised to you. The tree of life. So how will you respond? What do you see in your heart in light of this text? Is your life characterized by truth and it's in a commitment to it? Is your life characterized by love? Is your contribution to the life of this church characterized by both truth and love? Friend, it must be. Because every church must be characterized by both truth and love. I'm going to take just a moment to reflect on the words of the Lord Jesus to the church at Ephesus and to our church here in Revelation 2. And then I will pray and will be dismissed. And as with Every first Sunday, there will be men there who collect our monthly benevolence offering if you'd like to give to that.
Oh, what manner of love is this that has been lavished on us that we would be called the children of God? Our Father, we bow before You humbled that You, a holy and righteous God, would set Your love on us. That You, the God of all truth, would speak truth to us that we might truly know You and truly know ourselves and our own sin and our need for a Savior. Father, You are characterized by both truth and love. And You call us to imitate You. And so we pray now for in our own lives that our lives would be characterized by truth, not bending to the whims of doctrines that swirl around us in society and even from those who call themselves Christian not bending or compromising when it comes to holiness of living. And we pray that our lives would be characterized by love, affectionate, committed love to you and to one another. And we pray that the light of Jesus Christ who brought us grace and truth, who always spoke the truth in love, that the light of Christ would shine brightly as we, by Your grace, remain committed to both truth and love. Make us such a people by Your Spirit. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray these things, and in His name, we pray these things. Amen.